continue a little bit about what we talked about last week. We, we, we finished up a series on worship, and basically what we were talking about was worshiping the Lord our God, um, loving Him with all our heart, soul, and mind. Actually, the, the Scripture says, with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind separates them into three specific alls. <laughs> and then last week we talked about, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we were discussing, well, we weren't discussing, I was talking at you about uh, loving your neighbor and how that can be an act of worship. And we divided that into uh, three uh, specific areas from Romans chapter 15. The first was humility. It says, uh, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And we talked about this idea that the reason we get built up spiritually, the reason we want to study the Word, is, is for our relationship with Jesus, but not just for ourselves. It's so that we can get built up and we can serve others. Exactly what Jesus says. You want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You'll be a servant of all. So the greatest in the kingdom of heaven doesn't know the, mo uh, the, the most. He doesn't uh, give the most, right? He serves the most. And so we talked about this idea of, of humility. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The second thing we talked about was community. Romans 15, uh, verses 5 and 6. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what we talked about there was the fact that I, I, I listened to Nate's sermon from two weeks ago, and it was spot on. It was very, very good. Thank you, Nate, for doing that if you're even here. Um, but he quit right after that. He said, I'm not coming to church anymore. No. Is he here? Yeah, see that? Forget it. Enough. I'm going to start my own church. No. But uh, he was spot on in that this is kind of like our spiritual money laundering front. <laughs> okay? Uh, church is our front. We come here. We, this is where we celebrate what's been going on. But during the week... That's our real spiritual service of worship. As we get engaged in our community, into our, our, our school and our jobs and our neighbors, and as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, then we come here and we rejoice together as a community with one heart and one mind, praising God, going, you would not believe what he did for me this week. And so when we sing praise songs, we go, you know, like at the cross, we go, yes, he did die for my sin. I, Lord, forgive me for what I did on Tuesday at 3 p.m. or whatever. Right? We come here and we celebrate that there's a spirit of community and unity that with one heart and one mouth we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we talked about equality. Accept one another then just as, you accept, uh, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And we talked about, well, how did God, uh, Christ, accept us? While we were yet sinners. And so this idea of equality is that we all come on level ground, and we'll talk about this uh, a little bit more this week, but we all come on the same footing. We were dead in our sins, and Christ rescued us. And so we need to accept each other now with equality, warts and all. So someone's dealing with a, with a certain sin in their life, we don't just reject them. We spur them on. We say, come on, you can do it. Those chains can come off. Look what he did for me. We come with a spirit of equality. Not acceptance, because remember when Paul, in, uh, he disciplined the Corinthian church going, you guys don't stand for anything. You got people in your church doing all sorts of wacky stuff, and you, you just think it's funny. Not that. 
But we accept the sin, uh, the sinner, and then we begin to say, hey, God can change that. Spirit of equality. We accept one another then just as Christ accepted us in order to bring praise to God. Because that is what makes us different than the world. Hopefully with Christ there's a sense of, oh, I'm free. I would be totally bound up in my chains except I'm free. And so with that spirit we come and I accept other people. And the world goes, man... By their love, what did Jesus say? They know you're my disciples by the way you love each other. So that's what we talked about last week. We we wrapped that up. And uh, this week we're going into Matthew and we're talking about, uh, I name this Don the Baptist, uh, ushering the kingdom of God into our lives. My friend's name is Don. It rhymes with John. And I asked him if I could use his name. And I forget what he said, but I'm using it anyway. Don the Baptist. I could have made it Tom the Baptist or Ron the Baptist or Nancy the Baptist. My point is going to be this week as we discuss John the Baptist. What an incredibly great man of God he was. And that's available to all of us as well. We think, man, John the Baptist. Wow, that guy was hardcore. He just like a, like a garden grove, he'd be pushing a shopping cart. I mean, it's just like totally crazy, right? Great man of God. You mean I can be there? Watch. We'll see. So what I want to do first is give us a quick overview of Matthew. Since we're starting the book of Matthew, just a real kind of quick and dirty uh, what Matthew's all about and how we can start to uh, understand uh, this book from the writer's perspective. Matthew was written by, you guessed it, you guys are so smart, Matthew, uh, the disciple Matthew. And uh, it's it's his account through the Holy Spirit of what... uh, uh, of what went on when Jesus was here, his, his birth and uh, life and death and resurrection. But uh, what we see from Matthew is a tax collector and uh, got Jesus into a lot of trouble because Jesus hung out with Matthew and all his friends. And so the Pharisees were going, why are you hanging out with tax collectors? Matthew had held a big reception for Jesus. And uh, it was a party. And uh, they got in trouble for that from the Pharisees. So Matthew was called by God. He was picked by uh, Christ to be a disciple. Uh, but he brought a little bit of baggage with him. Praise God for that, for, for us. But Matthew's goal, Matthew was a Jew. And he wrote this uh, account to Jews about a Jew. So when we read the book of Matthew, we have to understand Matthew's main uh, goal was to portray Jesus as the Messiah, to portray him as king, to usher in this kingdom. Matthew uses a a, a term, uh, the kingdom of heaven, and he uses it about 30 times. No other writer uses that term, just Matthew. And what he's trying to get across is that Jesus is the Messiah, And it's important for us to see that as we move forward through this book. Um, The other thing Matthew does is about a hundred and, I wrote it down, 30 times, he uses an Old Testament allusion or an Old Testament reference to point to Jesus, to go, he uses the phrase, so that what was written by the prophets might be fulfilled. He's just trying to connect those dots. This is what was talked about the Messiah in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus did to fulfill it. So he does that quite often. And, uh, and it's to bring out um, uh, the fact that, God, that Jesus is king, that he is the Messiah. And it's very important to Matthew. So the book of Matthew talks about a time in history 
where, where uh, it, Jesus comes, John the Baptist comes. Prior to that, the, 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 there's 400 years of silence. The, the, the last book, not the last book written, but the, chronologically, the last book is Malachi. It's written by the prophet Malachi. The last books written were like First and Second Chronicles, but it was talking about a time before then. Malachi, that's it. The book of Malachi gets written, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Nothing for 400 years. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God begins to move again. The Messiah is coming. So there's 400 years. We get to uh, Matthew chapter 3. Let's go ahead and I'll, we're going to read. I didn't put it up there. You can turn because uh, uh, it's just too, it would just go t- too much. But um, you can just listen if you want. That's the one nice thing about the Gospels. They're narrative, so it's not like there's all sorts of stuff going on. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. There's that kingdom of heaven again. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now John's clothes were made of camel's hair, itchy and scratchy camel's hair. And he had a leather belt around his waist, itchy and scratchy aren't in there. Uh, <laughs> his food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can save yourselves. We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So here's this guy, John the Baptist. Now it starts out in chapter 3, in those days. Why does it say in those days? Because the span between the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, if we were watching this as a movie, that would be the time where they'd say, 30 years later, okay? Because 30 years goes from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3. Chapter 2 ends like this, talking about Joseph. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So, so was fulfilled, this is again Matthew fulfilling prophecy, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. So Joseph moves to Nazareth. Thirty years later, John the Baptist shows up in those days. Now John's name, this is so awesome, memorize this. The name John means God's gracious gift. So, look, I didn't give myself that name. Somehow my parents knew. And just did it. I don't know what the deal was there. But John the Baptist, uh, uh, is, I don't, was not named after John the Baptist. Uh, my, my parents uh, weren't believers at that time. I was probably named after, I don't know, John, John, Johnny, yeah, something probably should have thought about. Yeah, Johnny Cash. That's great. Yeah. I was named after Johnny Cash. But my favorite story of John the Baptist And uh, we were going over one of these. I was just 
going to be hard for you to believe, but I was kind of a goof off. And um, I guess it's been so long now that I don't really remember. I've been told. I was taking this test, and it came to a question that said, uh, who was um, the one that, 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 for, that, that the forerunner before Christ? And I, I promise I wasn't trying to be funny. I wrote John and then just wrote Rittenhouse after it. Like, instead of the Baptist, I just wrote John Rittenhouse. And I, I was distracted by something. I don't know, well, I probably know what I was distracted by. Uh, I was probably looking over at Lisa going, yeah. Lisa Rittenhouse, that has a nice ring to it. So my professor says to me, I, I'm getting my test, I got my test back and I forget what I got on it, but that one point meant a lot in my grade. I think I missed uh, something by one point. And so I went up to the, to the professor, uh, uh, Mr. Houston was his name, which is really where we get Houston, we have a problem. Because that's what I... <laughs> That's what I said to him when I showed up with my test. I said, Houston, we have a problem. I promise you I was not trying to be funny, right? And he's going, yeah, that's great. I said, you have to understand, everybody knows the answer to that question. It's John the Baptist. And I just put John Rittenhouse there. I, I swear, I don't know what I was thinking about. And Mr. Houston's like, I know what you were thinking about. You're thinking about Lisa, Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I know, but I shouldn't be punished for that. She's an eye candy. I can't help that. So I put my name in place of John the Baptist. That's got to be a sin. That's got, he must have been, my professor, must, my teacher must have been like, this is, I, well, there's no hope for the youth of today, Right? What I wanted to do this morning is we're going to look at uh, John the Baptist a little bit and see just the amazing call he has on his life. But I want us to begin to see characters in the Bible and begin to place our name where their name is. Not because we're great people, but because we serve a great God. But we serve a God who can take anybody, any one of you, any one of me, there's only one of me, any one of us, that's where I'm trying to go with that, and do great things. Why? Because he's a great God. So John the Baptist shows up here, and uh, we arrive at 40, uh, 400 years of prophetic, uh, prophetic silence. So what I want to do is read the last two verses of Malachi. This was the last word that God said uh, through his prophets. Um, before. It's a very, you only have to turn back a few pages, depending on your Bible. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can use one in the pew in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, feel free to take that. Some of them are kind of ratty. We'll try and get new ones, but... Now, you can take those if you need a Bible. But in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, it says this. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. What a bummer of like the last thing God says to his people. Oh, and by the way... I might strike the land with a curse. Talk to you later. 400 years of silence. 
So we get to this thing of this, this Elijah's going to come, and we see through the New Testament, all the Pharisees are bugging Jesus about, well, what about Elijah? What about Elijah? If you're really the Messiah, what about Elijah? Well, look, if we look at, um, uh, uh, so that's Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Well, the way John, I don't know if you guys know the story of how John was uh, brought into existence, but his father was a priest, and not the kind of priest we think of. And when we think of a priest now, we think of kind of like a pastor, but only in a different, in, in Catholicism or whatever. That kind of, the guy who runs the show. That wasn't the case with Zacharias. We'll look at that a little bit later. But uh, Zacharias goes into the temple to burn some incense. And Gabriel shows up. Now, Zacharias and his wife, uh, Elizabeth, haven't had any children. And Elizabeth is bummed out about that. But Gabriel shows up and he goes, Zacharias, guess what? You're going to have a kid. It's kind of like Abraham and Sarah, right? Same, same exact thing. You're going to have a kid. And um, here's how he describes John the Baptist. Now, see if you got Matthew, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Let's look at this one. Luke 1, 17. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist's job was to make uh, ready a people prepared for God. The Messiah was coming. If we look at um, uh, Matthew chapter 17, let's go to this next slide here. The disciples were asking Jesus, why then did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? The disciples are going, everyone keeps talking about Elijah. See, they, they all knew about Elijah, okay? If you go to an Orthodox Jewish Passover right now, if they're having one down the street, which they aren't, but if they were, there'd be a seat there for Elijah. There's a seat there for him. Everyone knows about Elijah. The disciples are basically saying to Jesus, you know, we, we believe you're the Messiah and everything, but what about Elijah? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Now, I go through all this. I mean, it's like, man, well, how does that practically relate to me? It's important for us to understand, like Matthew's trying to get through our heads, Jesus was it. The Old Testament prophesied. Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies. And so John the Baptist comes. John the Baptist was kingdom-minded. It's a term I use quite often, kingdom-minded. If we're talking about the kingdom of God, we want to be kingdom-minded people. Now, what, what do kingdom-minded people look like? They, they look like people who aren't so interested in themselves, but are thinking about advancing the kingdom of God. A kingdom-minded pastor wouldn't care if they opened up a, a, a church right across the street that grew and took all his people away if they're preaching the word of God. He wouldn't care. He'd go, great. They're doing it better than me. The kingdom's being advanced. A kingdom-minded pastor, I'm, I'm trying to bring it up. I always use examples for you guys. I'm using an example for me now. A kingdom-minded pastor wouldn't mind if a couple leaves the church if they're going on to do something for God. It's all the same kingdom. We're all on the same team. John understood this. His whole life was all about ushering in the kingdom of God. From the time he was born, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Word, the, the word of God says. 
Now what happens in those days, when a king would arrive, they would first send off these heralds. They were called heralds. You know, hark the herald angels sing. The angels were coming to herald. The, the king would send forth these heralds, and the heralds did uh, one of two. They did two things. The first thing they did was they went to each city and they said, The king is coming. Get this place ready. The king is coming. He's going to show up. The second thing they did was they'd fix the road that the king was going to take in order to get into the cities. So that the king wasn't, you know, jamming along like that. He's a king. He deserves a sweet ride, right? If he were in this day, he'd say, That's how we roll. Okay? So... Uh, just a little, for, it was for the older, older people. Just, I know you guys knew that already. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. All right. So, so uh, anyway. Uh, so they come, they prepare the road, and they prepare the cities. And what did we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 17? It said, make ready a people prepared for the Lord. When the Lord arrives... It's the road right to our hearts. If we set up the roadblocks, if we make that road difficult, he says, I'm going to wait until that road's prepared. That was what John the Baptist was doing. He was preparing people's hearts for God. He was was heralding. When we go back to chapter 3 in verse Matthew, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert. It means proclaiming as a herald. That he wasn't preaching like me. He didn't have three points. And, uh, and was, you know, saying, they all start with the same uh, uh, Hebrew letter. Um, he, was, he was heralding. He's saying, the king is coming. Get ready. So now we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Because when you look in verse 3 of Matthew, it says, This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Now it's very important that we understand this prophecy in Isaiah that was written hundreds of years ago so that we can see how these tie together, why we have our entire word of God and why it's important and why Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. So we turn to Isaiah chapter 40. It's right after... um, what is it? Song of Solomon? No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't read Song of Solomon while I'm preaching either. Okay? All right. Isaiah chapter 40. This is what it says. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. 400 years of silence has been completed. I'm going to read this out of the word here. <clears throat> That her sin has been paid for. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. That's what John the Baptist was supposed to proclaim. 
And there's little things in there. We could preach a whole bunch of sermons just on this message. But, but you get the idea. Speak it out and do not be afraid. We get the sense that John the Baptist was, you know, the guy was crazy. He wasn't afraid. He was just like you and I. Yeah, he had a radical uh, uh, beginning. And he spends 30 years in the wilderness until the, his appointed time. That's, that's a tough life. He's just like you and I. And it's important for us to see at the end of this uh, section of Scripture, it says, uh, You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. It says, Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Now, J- Judah in the Greek uh, and Roman adaption is now Judea. Okay? So when we go back to Matthew chapter 3, uh, we'll see that... Um, let me see if I can find that real quick. I had a little... There we go. In the days of John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, in verse 1, in, chapter, uh, in verse 5, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. John the Baptist shows up and he's it. He's the guy who's going to usher in the Messiah. How dare! His, 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 his father was a priest. His father didn't believe. It's a great story, but the Gabriel comes to Zacharias and says, uh, you know, hey, you're going to have a baby. And Zacharias says, oh, well, you know, my wife's barren. How's that going to be? And the angel says, Guess what, dude? I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. And so because you didn't believe, you're not going to be able to talk for nine months. See you later. (laughs) And Zacharias is going... You know, now he's thinking in his mind, because now he can't talk. All I did was say, how can that be, right? You look at Mary. Same angel. Gabriel comes down and says, you're going to give birth to a child. And she says almost the exact same thing. How can that be? I'm still a virgin. And he's like, oh, you found favor with God. Don't worry about it. See ya. (laughs) Women get preferential treatment. That's the only conclusion I can come to. The uh, angel's just like, you cute little thing. With your little doubts and stuff. Oh, you'll see. All things are possible with God. <laughs> Off he goes. Zacharias. <laughs> I'm not digging it. So, the, so Zachari- they, they come to Zacharias and it's a miracle that, that they have this baby. And, and when Jesus shows up, when, when, when Mary shows up to Elizabeth, Elizabeth is, is six months pregnant at that time. John the Baptist is kicking in his mother's womb. Already the Holy Spirit is upon him. It's the gr- unbelievable miracles. How dare I put my name in the name of John the Baptist on that test? I should have been kicked out of school for that. Well, here's the thing. I want us all to get this. We're going to look at three ways that John the Baptist ushered in the kingdom of God to the world. And how they apply to us ushering in the kingdom of God in our lives. The Bible says that there's no greater man than John the Baptist. Born of a woman. In Matthew 11, 11. The first thing is to recognize the kingdom. 
If we're going to be kingdom-minded people, if we're going, going to be people who are radical for God, who, who uh, live a life passionate, who want to usher in the kingdom of God in our lives and in our community, the first thing we have to do is recognize the kingdom, right? This is a totally different kingdom. Again, think of it as a Jew. A Jew, the Messiah, was going to come in, and it was really a perfect time for the Messiah to show up if you're a Jew, because the, the Romans have control. And so it's great. Come on in. We'll wipe out the Romans. We'll establish ourselves as our rightful place, which is God's chosen people, and it'll be awesome. But it's an entirely different kingdom. And I would submit to you that one of my biggest problems during the week as I begin to live a life of worship and want to incorporate the things I learn into my every day is I miss the kingdom of God. I start focusing on another kingdom, my kingdom. I start worrying about different things, about man, how, you know, uh, what I should eat and what I should wear and uh, how am I going to pay for college and you know, everything we're all worrying about, I begin to lose focus. The first thing is to recognize the kingdom. The first thing under that is God's kingdom requires God's timing. If we want, see, a lot of times we want to usher in God's kingdom into our life on our, on our time frame. It's like all of a sudden now we want to see, oh Lord, I want you to do great things. And God say, no, for your life right now, we're going to be in a period of silence. Some of you might be in a, in a, in a, a time of silence right now. God was doing awesome stuff in your life. He, he was, he, you, you said, it'll never change. It'll always be like this. I'll, it'll never, it'll only be up from here. And now it's just been steady. And maybe it's not sin in your life. Maybe it's just a period where God, there's silence. Lisa and I went through a period of time like that. Um, uh, again, most of you know this story, but um, ten years prior to me becoming pastor here, I was called to full-time ministry. Very clear calling. I was called to be a pastor. The Lord talked to Lisa first and then to me. Uh, probably, I don't know why, probably because Lisa was listening first. <laughs> and, uh, but 10 years, so uh, we knew it was, it was going to happen. So we began to, I got into uh, in an accountability group of, of people talking about becoming, going into full-time ministry. We're supposed to hold each other accountable. And, Everyone was trying to hold me accountable, like, all right, dude, you're called to full-time ministry. Go, do it. If you're called, do it. And I'm like, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think God has said yes just now. And it started to get on people's nerves, so I stopped talking about it. But I still knew. I had one pastor come and kind of berate me in a parking lot one time going, dude, if you're called, you need to obey. Or then you're just like Jonah, you know. I'm like, yeah. Well, as soon as he brings up what it's going to be, I'm on it. And so Lisa and I had time and time, different uh, churches that came up. And uh, one time we were going to plant a church in Lakewood. And we went through this assessment. It was all day long of these questions. That, oh, my good gracious. I'm serious. If Paul had to go through it, never would have done anything for God. He would have been like, this is ridiculous. I'm out of here. Uh, but uh, So we went through the assessment, and then the, the, the conference was going to pay for the church to start up. And we got right up to it, and we're like, yeah, 
about the whole church planning thing. Uh, no, no. And you can imagine how frustrated our conference was and those people around us. God's timing. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> Living Spring shows up. And it was totally, everything was the same. I'd, every church that would be offered me, I'd go at a time when no one was around and I'd drive on the parking lot and pray. Right? So it was just like every other time. I'm like, here we go. Turn on Bixby, Living Spring, you know, do my quick analysis. Built around 1955, you know, the whole thing, you know, just like the whole thing. Drive on the parking lot and, oh boy. Because <laughs> normally he'd say no right away. That was it. This is what I was called to. Now, why did God make 10 years of silence on this other than saying no? I have no idea. I mean I, I mean, I look back and I see all the things I learned and how he prepared me, and I go, well, that's it. Maybe it's not. Maybe he just said, you know what? You're an idiot. And so I need 10 years just to catch my breath with you. You know, I, I don't know. Okay? He doesn't shed any light as to why that is. But I do know this. I am glad. I, am, I praise him that it was all in his timing. God's kingdom requires God's timing. Poor John, maybe poor John, he's out in the wilderness for 30 years doing something totally different than what was the norm. Secondly, God's kingdom requires God's approach. So he's out there in the desert, and now it comes time to proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, if it were me, the first place I'd go is Jerusalem. I'd go into Jerusalem, and I'd, start, I'd head into the temple, and I'd be like, hey, guys, I just want you to know, uh, none of this is going to really, we're kind of changing everything. <laughs> but God's approach was totally different. It was stay in the desert and have the people come to you. Stay there. And if we begin to understand that process, we begin to understand the mountains being made low and the valleys being raised up. See, if, it were, if I were telling John the Baptist, I'd say, look, from an early age, start out in Jerusalem, let people get to know you a little bit. Then run for office, you know, be really involved in the community so that when you come on the scene, everything will be ready. People are like, oh, yeah, John the Baptist, what's up, dude? Yeah, cool. Yeah, we can listen to what you have to say. God's approach is radically different. See, what, he, what God wants is that, that prideful man, the mountain, to be made low, to have to leave Jerusalem, Leave the comfort of Jerusalem, walk down this horrible hillside, and come in and, and go, what do you have for me? And then those who are low, who are in the, in the deserts, who are, who are uh, in the dry areas of their life, God wants to raise up. Does that not sound like the kingdom of God? He takes the prideful and he says, it's time for a change. You're putting your trust in yourself, in the system, in this religion. It's time to change. You need to humble yourself and head down there and hear what I have to say. And then Jesus says to the meek, it's upside down. We'll see in a chapter from here when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are you who is a valley who's being raised up. And I'm here to say that we are a church of valleys that God can use 
We're also a church of mountains that God needs to say, enough. We're starting new to make straight the path to prepare the people for the kingdom of God. It's not where he preaches the kingdom. It's what he's preaching that matters. Repent. John chapter 4, verse 21. Jesus is talking to the uh, Samaritan woman. And this kind of gives you an idea of this new kingdom that's coming. A kingdom that is different than any other kingdom. And uh, you, you guys know the story of the Samaritan woman. She says, I'm not married. And she's a, he goes, I know. You've had five husbands. And the one you're living with now isn't your husband. And my favorite verse in the whole Bible comes right after that where she says, Sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. <laughs> Ding! Wow! Great call there. Uh, and so she says, Now our forefathers worshipped on this mountain, and you're saying i got to go to Jerusalem to worship. Again, this is the structure. And Jesus says, There's a totally new kingdom. He says, Believe me, woman. By the way, let's not... Uh, that's not something we apply today. I don't want you going to your wife and going, believe me, woman. It's, it was Jesus is allowed to do that. We're not. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. There's going to come a time when we worship God totally outside of church, of religion. It's, gonna, it's personal now. It's going to totally infuse everything that we are. Not on this mountain, not in Jerusalem. He goes on to say, Yet a time is coming, and now has come. This is the kingdom of God here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. This is a different approach. God requires a different approach. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, in reality, it's not a different approach. I mean, this is the way God had had it all along from the standpoint of wanting our hearts and wanting us to be people of faith and wanting us to uh, give all that we have to him to enter into relationship. That hasn't changed, but the structure, the approach, the system has changed. And it might be time for some of us in our lives that we use a different approach for the kingdom of God than we've used before. You know, as we think about, well, what does my relationship with God really look like? Does it just look like I work all day and then I come home and I watch television and then I, you know, I wake up the next day and then I go to church on Sunday and I try to get something out of it to fuel me for the rest of the week? It's time for a new approach. That's religion. God wants a relationship. God wants you to go to work and begin to say, Lord, how can I serve you while I'm typing? How can I serve you while I go out to lunch with a client? How can I serve you uh, when I'm at school and I'm doing the combination of my locker or I'm talking to somebody or I'm doing my homework? How can I worship you when I'm doing my chores? Or how can I worship you when I love my wife? And that, the Lord begins to do that, and then we come here and we go, Oh, let me tell you about the week I had. God is so good, a different approach. It's not doing the same thing harder. <laughs> John the Baptist came with a totally different approach. The people were coming to him. The people had to humble themselves. And that's how we come to Christ. And humility. Third thing, God, God's kingdom uses God's people. 
again, I, I talk about this almost, I'm tired of hearing it, <laughs> right? Every single one of us is vital to the kingdom of God. We've all been given a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, an appearing of the Holy Spirit. We've all been given gifts. We're all essential. God uses his people. Now, I talked about Zacharias a little bit. We talked about he was a priest. Well, of course he's going to use Zacharias. He's a priest. But we have to understand the priest in those days. It wasn't like he was the head pastor. Like, all of a sudden, John the Baptist is going to come through Pastor John because he's the... No, it wasn't like that. There were 24 courses of priests. Okay, so 24 uh, uh, um, uh, of these uh, groups of priests. And their time to worship came up at 24 times during the year. So about every two weeks, a new group of priests would come in. To um, that the, They had the high priests there, but these priests would come and they'd, uh, they'd work. It was like taking your two-week um, time off from whatever you did. You had a regular job, you worked in the field, or whatever you did. And so you, you would be called a priest, but you'd only work for those two weeks. So Zacharias was really like an elder, or just, he was just a dude, a religious dude, like anyone else, any one of us. Or do that for the women. Do this. Um... <laughs> So, so we look, and we say, it, it even says in Luke, when it talks about um, him being mute, it says when the time was up for him to serve, he went back home. And then that's when uh, they had John the Baptist. Okay? And so uh, he's just a normal guy. As a matter of fact, the fact that he was even in the temple at that time wasn't because he was that great. They cast lots to see who was going to burn the incense. Now, I don't know why they did that. I don't know if burning the incense was like a horrible job and everyone was like, well, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. You know, and then they're like, ah, you know, Zacharias is all bummed out. Two out of three. Ah, okay, so then he has to do it. Or burning incense was the coolest thing in the world. And everybody was clamoring. For some reason, they decided to leave it up to God and he gets chosen. It wasn't that he was the most spiritual. He was just a dude. Now, why in the world would God choose Zacharias? Let me tell you why. It's in Luke chapter 1, verse 6, talking about Zacharias and Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And you say, well, that kind of disqualifies me. <laughs> I'm not blameless and uh, righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are. Christ's work was done on the cross for the very reason to qualify you. It says not that we are adequate in and of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is of, from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, for the letter kills, but of the Spirit, because the Spirit brings life. God has made us adequate. God has made us blameless for those who have accepted Him. And so now it's just a matter of living that out. We look at Mary. Mary wasn't anything special. That's why God chose her. When Gabriel shows up, he says, Hey, you found favor with God. Because she was humble. Let me tell you, church, we're not going to be able to finish up this week, uh, which is fine. 
God's kingdom uses God's people. And we are God's people. And you may be in a time in your life right now where you just don't feel like God can use you for anything. It's kind of a source of pride, almost. Because essentially what you're saying, what they said to, uh, what Gabriel said to Mary, when she said, God can't, I'm a, I'm a virgin, how am I going to have a baby? That's impossible. In verse 37 of Luke, the angel says to Mary, for nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And I'm not trying to just speak sunshine and go, so therefore, go and be happy. No, there is an element of, hey, nothing's impossible with God. I don't want to be that mountain that stops the kingdom of God in my life. I want to humble myself and make that low so that he can get to my heart quickly. I don't want to be that valley that just is mired in chains. I, I want to be free from that, to bring it up so he can, he can then use me for service. Our, our, our mission is to reach, restore, and respond. We can't reach until we humble ourselves. We can't respond until we're restored by God where a valley that's, that's been brought up. And so what I would urge us to do this week is to recognize the kingdom of God. Begin to look at your lives this week. I'm going to begin to look at my life this week, every little aspect, and say, where is there a place that the kingdom of God could come and be ushered into my life, but there's something blocking it? I'm so proud of our youth. Uh, It's just amazing to me. And I can't wait to see how God begins to raise up this next generation. You guys, I'm so proud of you. But it starts right now. You've got this time where where your minds are being molded and, 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 and it doesn't have to look like your father's church, whatever you guys are involved in. We're going to talk about this a little bit next week. We're going to talk about baptism the week after that. But let me tell you, church, our youth is leading us in the area of baptism. We are in the-